Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. We are more vulnerable after a wasted decade than we should be. And so sitting over all of our efforts in the budget is how do we make our economy and our budget as resilient as the Australian people have proven to be? Hello, lovely pod people. Uh, You are listening to Australian Politics and I'm Catherine Murphy, the host. And with me on the show this week is Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer. Uh, Given that I'm speaking to the Treasurer. I'm sorry to laugh, but there's just so many subjects to cover and we will cover them over the next little bit. There's the budget to be put together uh, ahead of October cuts and and, and revenue measures. Uh, There is whether or not we're actually living in the 70s and we're looking at a sort of an oil shock and and a spike in inflation. Uh, and also uh, you know, what can be done about uh, wages and collaborative agreements between institutions in the economy to uh, try and shift things into you know, a, a wages growth productivity space. And we'll also have a yak about Labor's underperformance uh, in Queensland. Obviously, uh, Anthony Albanese won the election on May 21, despite that underperformance, but it's a serious issue for Labor to consider, and uh, given the Treasurer is a proud Queenslander, we'll get into that. Listen up. Jim Chalmers, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Catherine. Now, I I gather you have uh, very recently had COVID, so why don't we share your experience with the <laughs> with the listeners? Well, first of all, Murph, I say this knowing that a lot of people have had it incredibly tough. Um, I was so lucky, so fortunate. Uh, I had the most minor version of it, I think. I was pretty free of, of symptoms and, you know, very grateful for that. I had my week's compulsory isolation and, and was able to do a fair bit of work while I was in ISO and uh, and once I came out as well, so I was very lucky. And where do you think you might have picked it up? <laughs> well, this is a source of some conjecture as it probably is for everybody who catches it, given it's pretty much everywhere right now. Uh, a lot of colleagues in the office got a bad version of it, but I suspect I got my version of it from. Uh, I went to my little Annabelle, my five-year-old's daughter, parent-daughter, disco and Uh it turns out that some hundreds of people who were on that particular dance floor on that particular Friday evening uh, (laughs) got COVID and so um, I I know that you won't mention this to anyone else Murph because it's just me and you Mm -hmm. talking. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I got it Mm -hmm. at a five-year-old's disco party at the school. (laughs) 
<laughs> so the the rowdiest nightclub ever. Oh, Jim Chalmers right. picks <laughs> picks. <her. laughs> anyway, it's a great story. It was, anyway, hopefully... it was the kind of disco that had took place. It was sort of barely dark when it took place, and there was a lot of uh, <laughs> mildly embarrassing parental dancing going on. And I think I got it there. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. With that, with that disclosure out of the way, and an important one that it is bad dancing. Uh, I want to uh, obviously just uh, catch up on a bunch of stuff because I think the last time you and I had a conversation, it was just before the election. I hope nobody's gone back through all of the uh, fearless predictions and. Uh, analysis, and I hope that that's lost to us now. Uh, no, I, I, I don't think either one of us would be mortally embarrassed by that conversation. But anyway, the point being, now obviously uh, you've won the election, the government's been sworn in, you've been treasurer for just over a month. Uh, I just want to start with what has been the biggest shock to you coming in, because obviously you all had your incoming government briefings. Uh, and I asked the same question of Chris, actually, in the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago. So what's been the worst of it in terms of what you've learned? Well, I think mine is probably in Chris's portfolio. And, you know, we share some of the the energy regulators. But for me, that really quite extraordinary electricity price increase in the default market offer, uh, which our predecessors knew all about. Uh, before and during the election campaign and decided not to tell the Australian people about. I think for me that's been the most dramatic uh, undisclosed uh, pressure in the economy. I think that's been mm. – uh, and the broader issues around the, the energy market, which I think Chris has done a, a you know a terrific job uh, working with the rest of us to try and get on top of. That's been the biggest shock overall. But in, in the budget, I think really um, you would have seen – Anthony Albanese meeting with the premiers and chief ministers uh, not that long ago to extend the hospital funding, the COVID-related hospital funding. Now, I I was a little bit surprised to learn that some of that funding kind of assumed that um, the pressure on the hospitals all of a sudden just finished when, you know, we've got a heap of COVID in the community. And so from a budget point of view, really some of the unbudgeted for health costs, I think, have been the the things I've been most uh, disappointed about and focused on. Mm -hmm. And obviously you've now started the process where you've got got a lot of things on the boil, which we'll work through, uh, but you've started the process of looking for budget savings given uh, where the budget is at. So is this starting to take shape yet. Obviously, the, the the budget's not until October, but I think you want to make a statement to when when the new parliament opens in a few weeks' time. So what, what areas are you looking at? Like there's some obvious things in my mind, right? Like the nationals basically as, as a precondition of signing up to net zero in the previous government got an extraordinary infrastructure spend around the country, for example. Um, Is any of that on the chopping block? Um, Obviously, prior to winning the election, discretionary grants were very much in the frame in terms of what may not end up seeing the light of day. What can you tell people about, uh, you know, where, you know, we used to call it the razor gang in the olden Mm. days, in the olden times. So what are you looking at? Well, I think it's it's easiest to begin with what we announced during the election campaign that we would, you know, what budget repair would look like, at least in its initial phases under us. And we had those $11.5 billion worth of budget improvements, which had 
some of what you're referring to, you know, uh, starting to deal with this legacy of rorts and waste in the budget and some of those are discretionary funds that National Party and other ministers have had access to, as you rightly point out, uh, but also some other important savings too. For example, we think there's a there's room for a responsible increase in foreign investor charges. You know, we think that there's progress to be made on multinational taxes. Uh, we think that there has been spending on contractors and consultants in the public service, which has gotten out of hand. And so there's been a whole range of areas that we've nominated already. But the main action, the main work since we've taken government is to work very closely with uh, my friend Katie Gallagher on this audit of rorts and waste in the budget. I think inevitably after a government's been in office for almost a decade, but I think especially under the government that we've just replaced, there has been uh, a lot of wasteful, politically motivated spending. And so what we've asked finance and treasury to do is to work with us to go through the budget line by line to work out where money that might otherwise have been directed purely at a political purpose to work out where we could direct it or redirect it uh, to something that gives us an economic dividend. And so that's a really important way of thinking about the work that's going in both sides of the ministerial statement that I'll give to the parliament at the end of July, uh, but also the October budget. The October budget is going to be about three pillars uh, and then one overarching theme. The three pillars are, first of all, implement our commitments, which have become more important, not less, when you think about childcare and cleaner and cheaper energy and training and a future made in Australia, making our supply chains more resilient. That's implementing our commitments. The second pillar uh, is about cost of living, so implementing cheaper childcare, uh, cheaper medicines, um, starting to implement our plans for cheaper energy. And then thirdly, this area we're talking about now, how do we put the budget on a more sustainable footing, recognising you can't just flick a switch and make a trillion dollars of debt disappear, mm. uh, but you need to start the hard work. And so that's kind of the third part of it. But what sits over all of that, the kind of vision that Katie and I have for the budget in October is to recognise that this wasted decade that we've had of missed opportunities in training and energy in a lot of these areas uh, has made us more vulnerable to these big shocks in the economy, whether it's a spike in inflation or failures in the energy market. We are more vulnerable after a wasted decade than we should be. And so sitting over all of our efforts in the budget is how do we make our economy and our budget as resilient as the Australian people have proven to be? Resilience is going to be a really key part of how I'd encourage people to see this budget in October and the budgets after that too. You mentioned a multinational tax a minute ago. I'm glad because I've got a, a, well, a couple of revenue-related questions to ask you. Just um, in terms of cost of living, like the ultimate poison pill that you've got to deal with, well, actually there's a few, but this one, given current events, is a, is a big one. Are you still going to restore fuel excise to where it was prior to the, the previous government's cut? Because petrol prices have crept up again. I don't know how, you know, where they are in mm. Brisbane, but certainly in Canberra, they're north of $2. Mm. Um, it's, it's just, again, I have real trouble wrapping my mind around how on earth you actually execute that in an environment where cost of living is on the march. We, we may see further interest rate increases. Inflation is obviously where it is. Yeah. So is that still going to happen? The short answer is yes, most probably. We have the same view on this that we've expressed for 
well, on both sides of the election, really, which it, it would be incredibly hard to be able to afford to continue some of this cost of living relief, this specific relief indefinitely. Uh, and I filled up on Sunday. It was $2.19 in Logan City. Uh, and so prices are, even with that $0.22 cents a litre relief that's currently in there, petrol prices are through the roof again. What we've tried to do, what I've tried to do personally and what I think the government has tried to do is to be upfront about the challenges that we confront. So we've got uh, high and rising inflation that's going to get worse before it gets better. We've got interest rate rises attached to that. We've got falling real wages attached to that. But our ability to deal with some of these challenges is constrained by that trillion dollars of debt that we inherited from our predecessors. And so we can't we can't do everything. We can't even implement all of the good ideas, all of the things that we'd like to do. Uh, and so I think your listeners should assume uh, that that petrol price relief comes off in September. Mm. Uh, obviously, we factor in the conditions as they evolve and the budget and all of the rest of it. But uh, nothing has substantially changed to make me think uh, that we could continue that indefinitely or even for a substantially longer period than September. So that's the expectation. And we also need to be conscious of, you know, every dollar that we spend in the budget's got to tick a few boxes now when we've got the constraints that we've got. So the things that we prioritise, you know, childcare is about easing cost of living pressures, but it's also about building a bigger pool of available workers in the form of you know newer parents uh, if and when they want to come back to work we want to make it easier because that's another economic problem we've got labor shortages and skill shortages in the economy so every dollar we spend's got to tick a few different boxes uh, some of that spending which is in the budget mm. you know we supported at budget time um, but when you compare it to some of the other things we need to do and you consider it in the context of all of that debt we've inherited then it's going to be hard to extend. Mm, yeah, well, I, I mean, I totally get it. And obviously, you want to, as you said a minute ago, focus on resilience and you also want to focus expenditure towards productivity enhancing you know, investments. But, oh my God, the political pain and yeah. the, and the consumer, it just doesn't even bear thinking about because it, it will mean. I, I tell you, Catherine, I think about it a lot. Sorry to cut mm. you off. But I mean, I get asked all the time, That's is that going to be really difficult? And my answer is yes. Mm. It, it is going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult most meaningfully for people, but also, you know, we're not unrealistic about the politics. And, you know, the difference between this government and the government that came before is where we think something difficult needs to be done, we'll, we'll say so. Australia is not going to get through these economic challenges, which I think are really quite serious, certainly in the near term. We're not going to get through it if we just pretend to each other that everything's fine and we can afford everything and uh, and all the rest of it, it's going to be really difficult. And I think there's an appetite for a bit of real talk mm. on the economy. And I, I am personally quite optimistic about the future of our country, the future of our economy, but we've got to navigate these really difficult, very choppy waters that we're in right now about inflation and real wages falling and interest rates rising and all of that debt. We've got to be serious about it. We're not here to, to stuff around or to occupy the space. You know, we're here to be upfront with people about the challenges and also the opportunities and to see if we can chart a course together. Uh, and that means not pretending away these problems or trying to tiptoe around them. We've got real and substantial challenges which will not be solved uh, if we're not upfront with people about them. 
And I'm sorry to cut you off, Catherine. I'm, I cut you off mid-sentence. No, 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 you didn't. It's fine. Um, you, you have, I mean, I've heard you loud and clear, but there is there is a degree of hedge that you've got, though, in your answer, right? Like that, that more than likely, more than likely it'll revert to where it was, but that's not, you know, you're not saying absolutely it will. So accepting the merits of your broader argument, which I completely do, if there is, is there some sort of trigger point though that the government would look at to say, well, look, there might be an appetite for real talk about the economy. And I agree there's an appetite for real talk about all kinds of stuff, but there may not be an appetite for a 20 cent a litre increase at the Bowser. So is there is there a sort of threshold, a trigger point where you might look at it and say, oh, well, look, we'd love to actually do more productive stuff, but people will actually lose their minds if we do this now? I understand your question. I don't really see it like that. I don't think there's a not necessarily a trigger, um, but I think part of being upfront with people is saying that our job is not to kind of be proven right, you know, to say something and then down the track to be proven right about it. Our job is to do what's right and take into consideration the economic circumstances as they evolve and the budget circumstances as they evolve and to try and work out what the best thing is to do and so the, the the precedent I think this sets uh, by saying you know, our intention is not to extend it, but we'll always do the right thing by the budget and the economy, and most importantly the Australian people is is just to reassure people that we won't be stubborn for the sake of it. Mm. You know, let me put it this way, right? Forgive me for being a little bit kind of helicopter view about this, Murph, but the way I see it is we've been working our asses off for nine years to get into this position where we get this really quite extraordinary opportunity to help run the country. And I personally, and I'm sure my colleagues have got their own ways of explaining this, I'm not going to stuff around. You know, remember that great Paul Keating quote where he said, you know, our job is to comb through the fairy floss of public life looking for the value. <laughs> you know, I don't want this to be a fairy floss government. I want it to be someone, you know, we're always trying to make the right decisions. And even if we turn out that making the right decision means that we were wrong about something two years ago or three years ago. I'm, I'm personally okay with that. Mm. We have been working too hard for this opportunity to do it in a half-assed way or a dishonest way, mm. and, and that's how I see it. I feel it's, it's actually liberating to feel that way. I feel like Australians understand if we make the right decisions for the right reasons based on the best available information, they know we'll get some things right, we'll get some things wrong, but our motivations will be in the right place. And 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 that's how we're kind of going about all of these challenges. I don't think the petrol excise cut is going to be extended. I'm pretty sure it won't be extended, uh, but I will always do what I think is right. Okay. Uh, now, just to multinational tax, because uh, obviously Labor has supported the Stage 3 tax cuts, which is a whole bunch of revenue that the, the budget could use uh, that you're that you're going to hand back to people um, I presume that's that's still it is. your intention it is. Uh, Jim's yes just just for you listening Jim is nodding um, okay so then but multinational tax is an area where labor's left itself some discretion now you did have a a, a booked saving I can't remember exactly was it two was it two just two million or just something like okay, yeah. sorry just yeah. under Right. So in the in the election campaign, and you were clear about the parameters of that, but uh, I I think, in looking at what you say quite closely, you have left yourself some room to move in that area. So are we likely to see more 
from the government in terms of chasing revenue from multinationals. Uh, obviously, there's a bit of, there's an idea, and I, I hesitate to say this to you, Jim, knowing your history um, working for another treasurer during the mining tax debate. I hate to even raise it, but um, obviously there's some chatter around about gas windfall profits out of the out of the gas export boom a lot of those companies are multinationals like are you looking at anything more specifically in in that area than what you uh, foreshadowed just prior to the election on the specifics of the energy companies we're not looking at anything beyond what the process that the former government set up you'd be aware that there's um you know, a process that they didn't finish. And so we're trying to work out, you know, you know, we're getting briefed obviously on on that. You know, what where did the government leave that process? But we're not in the context of, you know, other countries doing windfall taxes and the like, we haven't been working up an option like that. Yep. Um, our multinational tax policy is not geared towards any industry or another in particular. Uh, it's it's about a couple of pieces and without sort of getting into the, the weeds of it, you know, there's an issue with uh, the way people use tax havens and part of our policy is about tax havens. There's also an issue about how big multinationals manage their debt and so they avoid and evade their tax responsibilities in le- legal ways yep. uh, in countries like ours. And so our the two policies that give us uh, almost $2 billion on the, the costing that the Parliamentary Budget Office gave us that's part of the process. There's also this a lot of activity on the global front via the OECD, but also you know Secretary Janet Yellen from the US, who I spoke to at some length the other night, and other countries have been interested in advancing some multinational tax reform as well. And we've said, as did our predecessors mm-hmm. actually, to give them their due, we've said that uh, we're interested in that as well. So we'll implement the policies we took to the election on multinationals We'll also implement uh, a version of what comes out of this OECD process that the Americans have been a big part of. And we think that's important and that's why that's our priority in tax reform. Mm-hmm. And the costing, you, you got a PBO costing, as you, as you mentioned. Has Treasury given you any updated numbers about what that might net uh, or not yet? Not numbers, uh, but we've had, a, we've had a heap of conversations about implementing our election commitments. You know, to give your listeners a sense of how this works, you know, you win an election on the Saturday night. If the, ele- if the outcome's clear enough and you know what portfolio you're getting, the, in my case, the Treasury Secretary rocks up to my house at Logan City and uh, and gives us a briefing, and a big part of the briefing is how do we implement these election commitments, and obviously a big one in my portfolio was multinational taxes. So we've had a few conversations about the implementation of it, but we'll update the numbers in the in the usual way closer to the budget. Okay. Um, now, just more generally on the economy, uh, and, and it's sort of been sitting in the backdrop of the conversation that we've had over the last, you know, few minutes, basically, that things are pretty rough. Uh, and there's a lot of commentary around, I'm sure you will have read, you know, internationally and here about whether or not we're, we're sort of in the 70s again, mm. whether or not we're we're looking at an oil shock and then a you know wage wages price spiral and and all of that sort of stuff all of those conditions that confronted the Whitlam government when they were elected in the 70s uh, do you do you think you're in the 70s <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I don't I, I certainly understand people's concerns if not fears about the global situation you know we've got 
Inflation in the US was, I think, 8.6 last time mm. we heard from them. In the UK, 9.1. That means that their central banks are having to play catch up. And I think a lot of analysts and economists are worried about what that means for the, for those big economies, particularly the American economy. Anyone who reads the you know, the Financial Times, most of the commentary right now is about prospects in the US. Uh, so obviously, that's something we're monitoring closely. Obviously, the you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine is putting severe pressure on food and energy security in particular, and that has consequences for us. And even in China, the way the Chinese are managing COVID, uh, still pursuing a version of zero COVID with lockdowns yeah. and the like, that has implications for the global economy too. So I, I am, there are parts of the global scene that I am worried about. I, I am concerned about, as are most people who, who follow it. Uh, I feel like in Australia, we have a big chance here if we can get through this difficult period, however long it goes for, six or 12 months or whatever it might be, I think our opportunities still outweigh our challenges after that. But we need to get through this period first. And so, again, I've tried to be upfront with people and say this inflation challenge is, is incredibly serious. Uh, and interest rates, as they go up, even though some people have a buffer, many don't. And so, and we've seen what interest rate rises do for confidence in the economy. And so, I've been upfront about that. People's real wages are going backwards. They've had a decade of wage stagnation. Uh, these challenges are serious challenges. Uh, but if you ask me what I think about the medium-term and long-term prospects for the Australian economy, I still think they're relatively strong. Uh, but not if our, our highest ambition is to get through this inflation spike and get to the other end and then just wake up with all the same problems that we've had for much of the last decade flatlining productivity, flatlining business investment, weak growth, stagnant wages, flatlining living standards, uh, I think we can be much more ambitious about that. And I think the only way that we could be ambitious and optimistic in a justifiable way is if we do the work now on energy policy and training policy and participation in the workforce and all the sorts of priorities we've identified. It's a conundrum though, isn't it? Because uh, voters, if we sort of look at the kind of political history, voters tend to vote in Labor governments to do things, right? Like there, there is generally an appetite for the country to move along in some way. So that's the expectation. But uh, certainly Kevin Rudd found how difficult it was to balance a progressive agenda with events. And obviously the GFC was a more profound financial crisis than our current moment, although our current moment's pretty sticky and difficult too. So, you know, you're talking about confidence before and confidence affects in rising interest rates, and I, I totally get that. What do you reckon about confidence, though, because people will see a lot of uncertainty in the world. The government's obviously run out of the blocks really fast and hard because you've, you guys have got a very clear sense, I think, of what you want to do and in what order in order to set up your agenda for this term. But if you, if you do too much, do people get worried about it? Yeah, uh, that's sort of a political calculation, I think, more than a more than a treasury one. I, I think that the answer to that specific question remains to be seen. I hope that doesn't sound like I'm trying to avoid it, but I think that there's no, a no, process. no. I think that's actually it's a truthful. I think that's a yeah. truthful reflection. It does remain to be seen. But what's your gut feeling? My feeling is that there is a sense of relief in the country which flows from a couple of different places. And, and Anthony Albanese deserves the credit for these impressions that people are picking up. But I, if you walk down the main drag of most places, 
I was out bush today and I got different versions of it in places like Toowoomba. There's a sense that the adults are in charge after our predecessors. You know, people express that in different ways, but there is a sense of that. There is a sense that we're up being upfront with people and we've we've been through, from my point of view, why that's important in the the economic space. Um, and I think those are good foundations upon which to build our efforts to change the country for the better. Um, and if people think we're doing it for the right reasons, we're being upfront about why these changes are necessary, and then plus in my portfolio, whether it's the, the job summit uh, or our other efforts, people know that we're generally trying to find where the common ground is. And, and the reform is difficult in an era of pretty severe budget constraints You can't buy reform. You and I have spoken about that. It's different to the Howard Costello years. And so not everybody will win from every change that that a government makes. But we're generally first trying to map out where the common ground is, which is, I think, a real strength of Anthony's because he's instinctively trying to find, you know, if we want to make the place better and we want to take difficult decisions to change the country and make it more resilient, you know, where are the areas we agree? And that's a good start. And it will be tested at times. You know, we've never pretended that uh, what we need to do on climate and energy is going to be universally applauded. You, you followed it as closely as any other human being on the planet, you know, the difficulties in this country around climate change policy. But we do have a chance to end the climate wars. If we're honest with people, we've got a good, robust policy that strikes all the right balances, and we do. Um, so if you ask me in now, we were joking before about whether the things we talked about before the election hold up after the election, and we'll know whether the things we're talking about now hold up at the end of this parliamentary term. But I think that there's an appetite you know, to try and end the climate wars and some of these other difficult things. And uh, our job is to sort of maintain people's acceptance of that by being up front with them, trying to bring them together, doing the right things for the right reasons, all of that. I think we've built a good foundation for reform, whether or not it holds. Uh, is is our responsibility. Well, it's your responsibility, but also it's subject to things outside your control. Now, um, you mentioned the Jobs Summit, and obviously there has been this debate uh, about wage outcomes following the Fair Work Commission's decision to boost minimum wages. Uh, You know, there's sort of, (laughs) it's kind of talking about the 70s, it's sort of like everybody's reverted to pearl clutching about, oh my God, some people got paid more, therefore inflation out of control as if we're in a, you know, sort of centralised economy where wage fixing is, you know, done in the olden times, in the ways of the olden times, as if unions have actually got much power. I mean, it's kind of like, it's really weird, you know, how you sort of get caught in these (laughs) old debates when uh, many of the fundamentals have changed. But anyway, so the Job Summit, as you say, is the Prime Minister trying to bring people together and see if there's areas of common ground. That'll be obviously industrial relations legislation or or regulations and other things, right? Um, But is there some sort of, you know, ground for some sort of, you know, small A accord between business and trade unions, given there are these difficulties, there are these inflation difficulties. Uh, you know, I think Sally McManus is totally right to say, well, you know, what? <laughs> like we can't actually flow wages outcomes across the economy. We'll try, but we can't actually do it. But what do you think about that as a concept? The a small A accord, sorry, to be clear, because I 
I went for a little ramble with that. No, no, I, I do think there are big opportunities for employers and unions to find common ground with the help of a of a government that's genuinely seeking that. Um, and you know, we're putting a lot of thought right now into the the main tasks of the job summit. Uh, and you know, clearly, migration settings are going to need be need to be part of it. Mm. You know, clearly, um, skills and training. Uh, there are industrial relations uh, elements that that Tony Burke and others are, are working through and thinking about. Um, there are issues around participation. Childcare is a crucial part of that, but are there other things that we should be doing, for example, for older workers to try and get more participation? Because what we really need is a bigger, more productive workforce where wages are growing strongly but in a sustainable way. Those are our objectives. And in order to do that and to find the workers that businesses need, you know, I spent a big chunk of today on on a farm in the Lockyer Valley talking about labour shortages. The, the challenges are sort of, they're not really ideological. You know, they're not, some of them are, um, but not all of them are. You know, a lot of them are just looking for a bit of common sense leadership, a bit of common ground, a bit of common purpose, including some of those ones that I just ran through then. So hopefully the Job Summit can can not just map out where we agree on things, but kind of start to chart the way forward. And if we are able to be successful at the Job Summit, whatever you call it, whether you put a capital at the start of it or a lowercase letter, letter at the start of it, I'm hoping that what we do at the Job Summit augurs well for things like budget repair. You know, I'm hoping it augurs well for some of our other challenges. You know, We don't want to make this Job Summit about everything, uh, but hopefully if we can demonstrate some success there and some progress there, there shouldn't be anything that prevents us applying that model to some of our other challenges too. Mm, you mean a sort of a, a buy-in model where you bring elements of the economy or institutions around the table to try and map out a strategy? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think so. And if you look across our cabinet, and, and Anthony is the person who, who, who does this most instinctively, uh, the type of characters that we've got around the cabinet table you know, that is our sort of, that's our preference. There are people who are up for a Barney if we need to have a Barney about policy, but we'd much rather um, spend our time trying to bring different parts of a conversation together and get an outcome. And the Job Summit is a bit of a, a, bit of a test of that, uh, but also hopefully, you know, if we do well there, um, then we should be able to apply that model to other things too. Hmm. And just quickly, just on migration, I want to ask you about Queensland to finish. We'll do that in a tick. But just quickly about migration, you mentioned that because obviously one of my dear friends is a small business owner and every time I see her, she she says, is the Labor government going to allow us to, you know, a, a more normal migration pattern to emerge? But again, that's a conundrum, isn't it? Because the sort of the scarcity of uh, resources in the labour market hopefully is a driver to increase wages, but yet businesses can't actually function because they haven't got enough staff to perform basic tasks, right? So are we looking, when? where does that land? Where does that land? More migrants, less migrants? What is, where does it land? I think we can do better. As we chase this wages growth that's been missing for a long time, um, we can do better than, than resign ourselves to the only way to get wages growth is to have a smaller workforce because there are a lot of businesses around Australia and I spend a lot of time with them uh, who could generate more activity and employ more people if they had access to more people. And 
you know, as I said, having spent a big chunk of today on a farm in the Lockyer Valley, having spent a chunk of today with some of the major employers around the Darling Downs, around Toowoomba, you know, labour shortages and skills shortages, were it not for this kind of quite extreme spike in prices and input costs right now, labour shortages would be number one. Yeah. Labour shortages is a bigger, more enduring challenge in lots of ways. Um, and so the way I think about it is, for all the wrong reasons, people get put into the sort of, they get pigeonholed. You know, that person thinks the way to solve this problem is migration and nothing else. That person thinks it's training and nothing else. That person thinks it's childcare. But in reality, we need to do all these things simultaneously and it's not beyond us to say, okay, we've had the migration tap turned off. You know, for higher income migration, how do we chase the world's best available talent? For skilled migration, how do we make sure that it's actually matching legitimate needs and is not a substitute for training? For low-wage migration, how do we make sure people aren't being exploited, Mm. right? None of those things are beyond us, right? Migration is part of the story. In training, there's a whole set of issues there, and we've got one of our big, most substantial policies is about fee-free TAFE in areas where there are general skills shortages. Childcare is about making that workforce bigger and more productive so that newer parents, if they want to, can return to work without being penalised out of the equation. Um, you know, there's a, all of this stuff needs to happen simultaneously and because we do want need to get businesses the workers that they need. And if we do that and if we make those workers more productive, whether it's training, whether it's how we adapt and adopt technology, uh, all of these sorts of things, we've actually got a big chance here with low unemployment to create a really fantastic labour market where everybody's getting what they need, everybody wins. Sustainable wages growth, uh, more productivity, uh, more workers in the right parts of Australia because labour mobility is part of the challenge as well, particularly in a lot of the towns that I knock around in, uh, particularly in Queensland but also out west and elsewhere. So a long way of saying, huge challenge, a number of levers. Let's not pretend that we have to work out which one to pull. We need to pull all of those levers simultaneously. Yeah, all true and fair, except, I mean, obviously labour mobility is the most sensitive issue for the trade union movement in contemporary times. And if you're talking about accords, either small or or big A, uh, it, in a Labor Party sense, in a institutional sense, that's a different, you know, difficult issue for you to manage. But anyway, I'm slightly getting ahead of ourselves. Do you mind if I just briefly yeah, say something about that? No, 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 that, sure. No? I think our, my job as a labour person who believes in migration and the economic benefits of migration and who accepts that there are near-term needs that need to be filled, our job uh, and where we have common ground with the union movement is if you want to build support for responsible, reasonable levels of migration, you've got to make sure that people aren't exploited so that they're undercutting Australian workers and their entitlements. Uh, and you need to make sure that you're not using migration as an excuse not to train enough people. Mm. Uh, you know, and if you do those things, there is more common ground there than it appears, I guess, is the is the summary of what I'm saying. And the unions have got legitimate concerns that they've been raising about exploitation and, you know, perhaps employers who would prefer to use more vulnerable workers for other reasons. There are issues there. And if we people like me want to build support for migration, then we've got to address those mm. issues. Okay, let's end with Queensland, where you are uh, for this episode. You're speaking to me from Queensland. Uh, uh, obviously, Labor is in government. You've secured 77 seats, but the performance in Queensland, I imagine, would be disappointing to you. You lost some of your metropolitan territory or one metropolitan seat. You lost a, a seat went to the Greens that you know, Labor 
was probably should have been in the hunt for, given the electoral climate and uh, the sort of swings. Obviously, there were swings to Labor, but do you think that as part of the campaign review that there needs to be a specific focus on Queensland? Because until Labor boosts its performance in Queensland, it's always going to be hard scrabble to get a majority government, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I have huge concerns about what happened, massive concerns about what happened, and I think about it quite a lot, as you'd expect. Um, But uh, first of all, we need to recognise we've got a swing to us here. It didn't happen in the right places. Um, But some of the seats which were out of reach that have traditionally been within reach are back within reach. Mm. You think about your Fords, your Petries, your Flins, uh, seats that we targeted very uh, enthusiastically in 2019 where the margin blew out to 8 or 9 or 10%. In many cases, those margins have halved. Uh, and so that's the kind of glass half full mm, version yep. of it. Um, devastating to lose somebody of Terry Butler's calibre. Uh, Terry Butler, you know, would have been a cabinet minister, but a, but a key one, a central one. Uh, and, you know, it, it stings a bit to lose someone of her calibre and to lose a seat like Griffith, which has produced the Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, so that, that hurts, that stings. Uh, and we were in the mix in Brisbane, and we had a really quite remarkable candidate, Madonna Jarrett, who I desperately wanted to see in the Parliament, and we were in the mix in Ryan, and in all three cases it went against us. Uh, our big challenge here in Queensland is how diverse the place is, more decentralised than elsewhere, and so the it's, it's true in other places of Australia, but trying to simultaneously win Brisbane and Flynn uh, incredibly difficult, and we didn't we didn't manage it. And so, what you know, Murray Watt and Annika Wells and Anthony Chisholm and Shane Newman and Milton Dick and all of the, all of our members and our senators, Nita Green. What we are trying to do is to work out, okay, in the absence of a heap of members, you know, how do we make sure that Queensland isn't left out and left behind? You know, they in a in a government that didn't care about representing the whole country, there would be a risk with Queensland so severely underrepresented in the government that that, that our, our interests would fall by the wayside. And we, we, have, a, we have worked with each other very well. Uh, we get along very well. You know, we want to work twice as hard to make sure that our voice is heard around the cabinet table and around the caucus room because uh, we would be an even better government if we had more representation out of Queensland and hopefully we can deliver that as part of hopefully delivering a second term. But in the interim, in the absence of that, then we're just going to have to work twice as hard. But it's sort of also, last question, I promise, it's sort of you're right to say it's extremely difficult in an election to win both Brisbane and Flynn. Like that's just demonstrably true. But the fact is Labor would not be in government today had you not been able to hold your traditional blue-collar territories in other states as well as picking up in the metro contests where you could and trying to hold out other progressive forces where that wasn't possible, right? Like this this particular victory demonstrates that as hard as it is, you can actually hold traditional territories and progressive urban territory as well, but that didn't happen in Queensland. So is it a matter of working harder, Jim, because I don't think any of you are lazy, or is it or do you need to look more closely at you know, at, at why the strategy that worked nationally, including in WA, a resource state very similar to Queensland, although McGowan's another issue, but do you need to look quite closely at what happened and what you need to learn from it? Yeah, we do. Uh, and 
you know, already that soul searching for want of a better term is is underway. You know, it's sort of a little bit strange because we've had this quite remarkable national victory and there's a lot that we can be proud of. But at the same time, we re- need to recognise where we fell short and we fell short here. And there's no, again, there's no use kind of pretending otherwise. Um, and, you know, part of it is in these genuine three-cornered contests, you know, all three of those uh, those seats that the Greens won could have gone either way. Maybe Griffith might not have fallen to the Liberals, but certainly Brisbane and Ryan. Uh, all three of the big players in those seats could have won the seat on the day. Um, and so it's a close run thing, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't change the scoreboard. Um, so there is there is an element of soul searching, you know, and it stings a bit because we did put a heap of work in before the election. And as you rightly point out, it's not like we did nothing before and now we've decided we're going to put our back into it. We did put our back into it. I did more than 60 visits. Hmm. Uh, to regional Queensland alone. Um, maybe that's why we feel sure maybe I should avoid the joint. Um, <laughs> but, but, and so I, I know what you mean about it's not necessarily about working harder in terms of hours, but, it, you know, I spoke to Murray about this today. You know, I speak to Anthony Chisholm about it, Annika, others all the time. You know, we need to make sure that with our small numbers we have a big outsized influence on the government and, and that's, what, that's what we intend to do and hopefully you know, that pays off next time around. But I feel like if we govern well, you know, I hope this doesn't sound like a cliche, but if we govern well, the politics will kind of take care of itself a little bit. Mm. And if we demonstrate that in a in a relatively conservative place, you know, outside the southeast corner of Queensland, it is relatively conservative compared to the rest of the country. I think if we demonstrate that we're trying to govern for everybody and not just for the inner cities or even the inner ring of suburbs, if we, if we demonstrate that we're trying to govern for everybody, hopefully that pays off. Mm. Good note to end on. Jim, you're busy. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for the chat. Well, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Thank you to the lovely Alison Chan who put the episode together this week. Thank you to my, uh, our executive producer, Miles Martignoni, and thank you all for listening, sharing and the usual drill. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. 